You're listening to the Exegy Podcast by Gary Livengood. This is Lesson 13 in our series on 2 Peter. Welcome to this session of the Exegy as we continue in 2 Peter chapter 2. We're looking at uh, Peter's just relentless uh, attack, uh, spiritually motivated attack, uh, appropriate attack, if you will, on the false teachers. The damage of false teachers to the church is inestimable. It was back, it was that way back in the first century. It still is today. And, uh, and just it's amazing, amazing to me how relentless Peter is as he goes after these false teachers. We talked about in the previous two sections about the three categories of sin of the false teachers. If you were with us, you might remember that was audacity, animality, and avarice. Now we're going to start in verse 17 and talk about the spiritual condition of false teachers. And after all we've gone through, uh, you won't be surprised that their spiritual condition is really, really bad. And they are really looking forward to a, uh, a terrible eternity unless they can somehow be saved. So there, I want to read all the uh, rest of chapter 2 beginning in verse 17. These are springs without water and mists driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than, having known it, to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallow in the mire. Mm, what a passage that is. So the spiritual condition of false teachers, beginning here in verse 17, and again, Peter just kind of piles phrase on phrase about these uh, false teachers and false prophets, uh, describing their their terrible spiritual condition and the desperation of their souls. They don't recognize that, of course, but that is their true condition. Verse 17, he says, They are springs without water, mists driven, and the idea is driven away by a storm, seems to indicate just a complete emptiness in their souls. I mean, what is a spring? It's a source of fresh-flowing water, and, and springs tend to always flow fresh water permanently. Yet here, it's an empty, dry, and by the way, therefore, useless spring. It can accomplish nothing good. It's not able to function as it was supposed to function. It doesn't design, it doesn't work as it was designed to work. Mists driven away by storms, and perhaps the idea is, in some senses, promising much, and they do promise much uh, in their lies and in their heresies, but they deliver nothing, empty of water, so to speak. 
Now, the beautiful thing here is the perfect, infinite, eternal God. Think about that. That's who our God is. Perfect in every way. Infinite. Eternal. God, he created us. He designed us. He gave us purpose. And as a result of that, he knew best in the design of each human, including you, by the way. Yet, here are these false teachers. They are unable and unwilling to function and live as God designed them. Unable and unwilling. It's not just, it's not only that they're unable, they don't want to function in the way God designed them. And again, a perfect, infinite, and eternal God, what he says about us is true. And the way he designed us is the way we ought to live. But these false teachers reject it. Here's Jude 12 and 13. We referred to some verses in Jude in the past. But here's these two. Again, I believe referring to false teachers, false prophets. These are men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. Interesting, there's that reference again to love feasts. We've talked about that before. And uh, you might recall that uh, those love feasts, which began as a wonderful thing, the community of believers getting together to celebrate together and then uh, have communion, well, they had gone very wrong. These men are, these are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved. Wow has been reserved forever, actually. So you can see some similarities between what Jude says here in, in verses 12 and 13 and our text in this session in Second Peter verse 17 and so forth. For whom the black darkness has been reserved. A strange and difficult statement. And we have talked a little bit about this before. Um, I, I just want to mention a few more things about it. Uh, it it's, it's strange and difficult because it doesn't really seem to refer to Hades. And I want to read just four verses from Luke 16. Remember, that's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man is in Hades. And here's what it said. Now, this doesn't sound like what Jude described. Um, Luke 16:23. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus received bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. So it's a place of suffering, as we've noted before, but it doesn't sound like this place of black darkness that has been reserved forever. It also doesn't exactly seem to uh, parallel what we see in the lake of fire. Just one verse from Revelation twelve fourteen. Uh, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. 
This is the second death, the lake of fire, and we know that, and I've often heard of that probably as the lake of fire and brimstone. Again, it it doesn't sound exactly like this place of black darkness that has been reserved forever. So, I don't know, perhaps Jude uh, 13 as well as verse 6 in Jude are, are describing a separate place of dark punishment for these vile uh, human false teachers. I'm not sure. It's certainly uh, something that we're not given a great deal of de- detail in uh, on in the scriptures. Uh, so probably some speculation to say that it's a different place. We really don't know. But just the way that both Peter and Jude describe this place where these false teachers are going to be punished, um, it's just so unusual and seemingly different. In any case, Let's move on to verse 18. The means of deceit by the false teachers. How do they deceive people? Well, the New Living Translation, I like that in this verse, says, they brag about themselves with empty, foolish boasting. And that fits very well with what we've seen of the false teachers, particularly remember back in verse 10 of 2 Peter 2, when when he talked about their their audacity, audacity and arrogance, which go hand in hand. They're full of themselves. And despite the obnoxious character of these of these false teachers, some people are deceived by this. And please note this, friends. Um, the question, of course, I, I always like to ask is, when we see some person living in some sort of sinful situation with a bad character or whatever the case may be, I always like to ask, you know, what, what does the scripture say about how Christians are to live uh, uh, um, related or compared to that. Well, here's what the scripture says in a couple of passages about the opposite character that that God des- desires to see in us. 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6 says, You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. You know, we need to come under the authority of the, the elders, the pastors in the church, and whatever other authority God puts in your life. And then continuing on there, Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So among other reasons, one reason that God is opposed to false teachers is this uh, bragging, this arrogance that they they have about themselves. And then verse 6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. God knows the best time to exalt us. If that is going to happen in this life, he certainly uh, says he will exalt us in some way when he returns, will be rewarded and so forth. But if God wants to exalt you in this life, that's his business. Don't get arrogant and prideful about, about it. Also, um, Micah 6, 8, what a great, great passage uh, from the Old Testament about what, how God wants to, us to live. And and uh, he has told you, O man, this is Micah 6, 8, he has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? Well, here it is. Micah tells us, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And isn't that powerful? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. There again, an emphasis on humility, not arrogance. And so obviously, uh, arrogant and conceited people, not too likely that they will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And if they're not filled by the ho- with the Holy Spirit, then I we need to say, don't be influenced by them. In fact, 
the, you know, the one man that had, if any man had a claim to uh, declare his greatness in, in an arrogant way, he wouldn't have, of course, but it would have been Jesus. And yet he was the humblest person of all. Philippians 2.8 says about Jesus, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus, uh, the greatest human, the God-man, the glorious son, the redeemer, and all those wonderful titles, he, more than anyone, humbled himself. And that's the exact opposite of what we see from the scripture about the false teachers. So the false teachers entice people in two ways mentioned here in verse 18. First of all, by fleshly desires. Fleshly is the Greek word sarks. Um, and the word sarks itself, fleshy, may be a reference to the, the seat of sin in humanity, maybe the sin nature itself, the fallen nature where sin originates. But as we've seen time after time, uh, the idea of fleshly in, in false teachers does have the overtone of sexual desire. It does have that overtone. But clearly here, the base, it's the base dark place of fallen humanity. And then the second way that uh, false teachers entice people, guess what? By sensuality. And again, we see that uh, Greek word, asylgaia. And this, this word really goes to a dark, evil place. They entice people by this type of sensuality. And that word is just really an ugly word. Uh, filthy, licentious, lascivious, um, excessive behavior sexually, uh, an absence of restraint, uh, restraint, indecency, and even uh, an insolent regard of indecency. And again, to note the NLT, it says twisted sexual desires. Man, that's a, that's a dark word. And yet, that's some means by which they entice people. So at least in part, Verse 18 seems to address those who want to throw off of their lives normal sexual relationships. They want to eliminate that, and they want to pursue abnormal sexual relationships. And listen, this is the case. And promote things like pedophilia, press for gay marriage, polyamory, uh, normalized pornography. There is a movement on to do that, utterly perverse but those, there are people who want to normalize that. And here is the horrible reality. Many are being deceived by these false teachers and marching into terrible bondage, um, addictive behaviors, and perhaps ultimately into hell. Listen, this is happening. And I'm sure if you uh, look around much at the culture, you'll see this. But again, these are false teachers who are influencing the church. Have you noticed, again, how much of Peter's indictment in chapter 2 of the false teacher teachers is tied up with sexual immorality? It's really amazing. And although I've read Second Peter, the book of 2 Peter many times, I had never noticed how pervasive among uh, false teachers, false prophets, this matter of sexual immorality is. Um, the last phrase of verse 18 tells the tragic reality of false teachers. Again, the NLT reads like this. They lure back into sin those who have barely escaped from a lifestyle of deception. 
I mean, notice that. They lure back into sin those who have barely escaped. May I address those of you who may be newly saved Christians, if you're a recent convert to Jesus Christ, praise the Lord, that's wonderful. Uh, hopefully you will continue that path. Uh, don't hesitate to start growing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't hesitate. And I've, I've seen this happen. Uh, I've, I've helped people find Jesus and, and so forth. And I've seen this happen. A hesitation to get involved in spiritual matters, spiritual truth. Listen, hesitation is what Satan wants you to do. He says, delay, wait, don't get carried away. Don't become a fanatic. Uh, don't go to that Bible church. He gets you to delay and to delay. Uh, and, and you cannot afford to do that. You need to get into a Bible teaching, preaching church, get into classes in the church, or some kind of group, small group, whatever your the church might call them. Develop habits of prayer and Bible reading. Be in relationships with godly people. Uh, these are super important in order to uh, not, as we see here in verse 18, not be lured back into sin. Uh, you need to aggressively, I believe, aggressively pursue your relationship with Christ. As I mentioned, I, I have too often seen new believers fall back into worldly, into worldly lives because they were not aggressively pursuing their new faith. They were hesitating. Um, my favorite word, and people who have been in classes with me will know this, my favorite word in the Christian life is the word intentional. You must be intentional about your relationship with Christ. I've often said, no one stumbles into spiritual maturity. It doesn't work that way. 1 Corinthians 3, 1-3 says this. Paul writes the Corinthians. He's very worried about them because this kind of thing we're talking about in chapter 2 here of First Peter, of Second Peter, it sounds a little bit like this is what's happening. 1 Corinthians 3, 1, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? So Paul gives them a pretty strong warning uh, about their relationship with Christ. They should have been much farther along spiritually as they, than they were, but they really were not being intentional. And by the way, if you're a mature believer, make sure you're helping and encouraging new believers. This is part of our duty, our, our responsibility as uh, more mature believers. And I won't read right now from it, but I would point you to, Chita, to Titus chapter 2 for teaching on this. The older men are to instruct the younger men and younger believers. The older women in the Lord are to instruct the younger women. And that's a very uh, important responsibility for older believers. All right, back to Second Peter chapter 2, verse 19 here. One way that false teachers and false prophets snare people is by, quote, promising them freedom, unquote. Unfortunately, uh, this often means freedom from the moral law. Now look, 
We've noted before that believers are not free from the moral law. Why? Because the moral law represents God's character, God's nature in some way. So we're not free to reject that. We are free as believers from trying to be saved by the moral law. That's impossible. You can't do it. The only way to be saved by the moral law is to be perfect. And you can't be perfect because you were born with imputed sin. So there's no way to be saved by the moral law. But at the same time, we're not free from obedience to it. Um, And many passages in the New Testament remind us and urge us about obedience to the moral law. Romans 1, Galatians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, and many, many others. Um, In fact, Paul's great declaration in Romans 6, 1 and 2 really should settle the matter. That should settle it forever. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Nonetheless, the false teachers promise freedom, and yet they themselves are slaves to sin and slaves to corruption and really slaves to Satan, uh, the god of this world or the god of this age. And also, sadly, these people are slaves to death. As Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. So now let's compare the wages of sin is death and this, this matter, this matter of uh, slaves of corruption and so forth to what Jesus offers you and I. We'll read from uh, John 8, beginning in verse 31. This is what Jesus promises as opposed to what the condition of is the false of the false teachers is and their followers. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then, notice that cause and effect, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. What great words, great promises and statements from Jesus. So, you know, we can live in that bondage following falsehoods, false teachers, or we can live in the freedom that Jesus Christ offers us. And there is a very, very interesting paradox there about the Christian life. Uh, but so important and so valid. Serving Jesus equals freedom. I get that. Serving Jesus equals freedom. In fact, interestingly, the more fully and more completely that we serve him, the more freedom we have. Uh, Jesus' very words in John 10.10, I came that they may have life, and and you know this verse, right? And that they may have it more abundantly. So, being a servant, a bond servant, even the, the word doulos, slave of Jesus Christ, ultimately brings greater and greater freedom. Uh, freedom is never, hear me, hear me, friends, hear this. Freedom is never, ever found in carnal and fleshly things. In fact, Peter, back in, in this verse we're looking at right now, says, they themselves are slaves of corruption. Talking about the false teachers. Corruption is phthora. In Greek, it also can be translated as destruction. So, 
corruption, they are slaves of corruption or destruction. In fact, that word can even have the eye of, the eye of something that is killed. So remember, no matter what our screwed up, mindless culture says, sin is, de- is self-destructive. Sin does not free anyone. It destroys humans. Uh, Peter goes on, for by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. And the reality is, all humans are overcome by sin. We all are. Hence, all humans are slaves to sin. And I say that because every human is born a sinner. That uh, sin is imputed from your parents, and they from their parents, and all the way back to the uh, Garden of Eden. Romans 5.19 says, For as through one man's disobedience, and that would be Adam, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. So you have no choice in the matter, sorry, but you were overcome by sin. You were born a sinner. In fact, you were conceived, in a sense, in sin. So we're all born that way. And we can see in passages like Colossians 2.13 and Ephesians 2.1 that, that we're born. Actually, Ephesians 2.1 says we're born spiritually dead. But the good news is that's why God offered redemption to us. But further, humans may give themselves over to specific sins, which further enslave. So not only this matter of being born into it, you know, Christians, when you're saved, uh, that setting free begins and, and we are able to begin to live lives where we serve Jesus and, and we end up being free in the Lord. But without that, many humans give themselves over to specific sins beyond just that, that uh, imputed sin that we're all born with. And they further enslave themselves in addictions and bondage. And uh, some of those are very obvious. We all know about addictions to, to uh, uh, alcohol and uh, drugs and uh, pornography now, of course, is huge. Sexual addictions. And those are the obvious ones, but there's addictions to other things like lying. If you've ever been around a pathological liar, it's remarkable. Pathological liars, how often they lie when there's no, quote, good reason to lie. And I'm not suggesting there's any good reason to lie, but pathological lying is it's sort of an addiction. There's addictions to money. We see that a lot in our country. Uh, to power, to influence, addictions to physical appearance. It's a huge problem, in, in certainly in the United States, addiction to materialism and uh, many other things. So I think we can all agree that all humans are enslaved to something or someone. Now, I'd say that based on Matthew 6.24. And this is not a bad thing. This is, this is okay. Because Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. But the good news is we can have a master who has our best interests in mind, who loves us, and who is preparing us for eternity. But we will have a master. There's no getting out of that. So listen, do you want a master that destroys your life, that has been on dragging you down to hell, ruining your relationships, filling, filling you with anxiety, fear, anger, bitterness, hate. Is that what you want? I hope it's not. Or do you want a master, and his name is Jesus, that sets you free, gives you the abundant life, offers you eternal life in perfection, uh, giving you rich, healthy, satisfying relationships, 
filling you with calm, peace, assurance, joy, love, and the fullness of the Godhead. Which do you want? I mean, it's such a, it's a ridiculous question, right? And yet, and yet, people choose the other. Uh, which master do you want? You know, Peter began this epistle saying, uh, in verse 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Again, as we talked about at the very beginning, bondservant is the Greek word doulos, and that can also be translated as slave. Peter recognized himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And you know what? He rejoiced in that. He rejoiced. Why? Because he knew all those things I just said a minute ago about the greatness of having God, of, of having Jesus as our master, and, and the life that we were able to live as we obey him. Um, again, I'll just I'll restate this one time here. One of the great paradoxes of Christianity is that in our obedience, in our willing subjection to Jesus, we are set free. Uh, we can then become what our creator intended us to be. So again, which master are you going to serve? And remember, you will serve a master. All right, verse 20 says, For if they have escaped... Now, one of the questions that's asked by commentators, scholars, is who is they here? Is he referring to the false teachers, or is he referring to those whom the false teachers have deceived? And there is disagreement here among commentators, but ultimately the principle here applies in either case. And I would say, friends, just make sure you are not part of they. And let me read to you from uh, again from earlier in Second Peter. Uh, chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, again, a super important passage about what you and I need to make, do to make sure we never become part of that, that they uh, that Peter talks about. Uh, chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. So you can be 100% confident and sure of your salvation. And, and, but, but there is a choice you need to make about being diligent uh, to make certain about his calling and choosing. Uh, two notes uh, that they, at some point, uh, we need to we need to recognize. Uh, number one, they had notice the past tense. They had escaped the defilements of the world, and number two, they had escaped by the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Knowledge there, by the way, is epignosis, Greek word, and and that means a very specific, exact knowledge, not just a general knowledge of Jesus, but a very specific thing. So they again, two things about they. At some point, they escaped the defilements of the world. And second, they escaped by, as Peter says, the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. By the way, that word epignosis for knowledge, Vine says, uh, epignosis denotes exact or full knowledge, discernment, recognition, and is a strengthened form of the word gnosis, expressing a fuller or a full knowledge a greater participation by the knower in the object known, thus more powerfully influencing him. Interesting. Now, the position of these people, well, they were saved. They had been saved. 
And I think these two points spoken by Peter, they escape the defilements of the world. That would never be said of unsaved people. And this depth, this epignosis of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, again, that would never be said of the lost. The, I think this means these people were legitimately saved. So the position of those people, saved. The problem of those people, snared. One more time. The position of these people, saved. But the problem of these people, we'll look at now, snared. There's three key words or phrases by Peter here about these people who are snared. Number one, he says, they were again entangled. They were again entangled. Again would certainly probably mean they were right back were where they were before salvation, or as we'll see, maybe even worse. Uh, and the word entangled, empleco in the Greek, um, it's normally translated as entangled, but very literally means to weave in. The problem of these people, they were woven back in again to their previous lives before they knew Christ. Woven back in into their life of sin and unbelief. And, and by the way, may I mention that, you know, you've probably seen people do weaving. My wife is a, a tremendous uh, quilter. She makes beautiful quilts. And it's a long process. Uh, it's not exactly the technical weaving, but it is this putting together the quilt through various ways of, uh, of uh, tying and, and looping and all these kind of things. It takes time. And that means that when you're woven back into your old life, there are many little yeses that you have to say to the Lord, or against the Lord. There are many little yeses that you say to sin. Yes, I will participate in this sin. Um, as I've noted before, I think um, no one who is walking solidly with the Lord wakes up one morning and says, I'm now going to reject Christ and pursue a life of sin. It just doesn't work that way, does it? It's a lot of little yeses being woven back into the lives of sin and unbelief. So, Peter says they are again entangled. Secondly, he says they are overcome. And overcome refers back to the defilements of the world. And this would include moral defilement, practices of the vices of the ungodly. Uh, some, would, some have called this pollutions, perfectly good description of that. Uh, these are the things, by the way, that had overcome those who had previously escaped those defilements. And yet it looks like there they are, they're overcome, right back at it again. And the third state of the problem of the people who have been snared is, uh, snared. the last state has become worse for them than the first. Uh, the first state probably refers to their condition before they were saved, and, then, and they were lost then, of course, uh, before the, quote, epignosis, the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And after going through the process of, of salvation, then back to defilement. And Peter says they are now worse off than they were before they were saved. Uh, I want to read to you from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 8, uh, something which I consider to be very similar to what Peter's talking about here. Hebrews 6, beginning in verse 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. 
for ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and it's close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. Woo, what a passage that is. Uh, the writer there of Hebrews talks about that it is impossible, whatever this group is, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Renewing them to repentance seems to mean that at one point they had repented, but they've fallen away so severely that they're beyond repentance now. And I think that's kind of the danger Peter is talking about. And maybe that's why he says here, Peter says, the last state has become worse than the first state. And maybe Peter is saying or hinting at uh, they have reached the condition of Hebrews 6.6, 6, where it is impossible to renew them to repentance. Whatever that condition is, and I know that people will take very differing views on that, it's very bad, and you and I do not ever want to be in that situation. Very, very bad, very dangerous situation. Then verse 21, uh, additionally here, Peter seems to say it would have been better for them to have never been saved that they would have never known the way of righteousness, he says, uh, rather than to go through this rejection. And, and by the way, let's be honest, a phrase that that would never be said, I don't think, of those who never truly knew the Lord. Uh, they, you would never say that they, that they know the way, way of righteousness if they weren't saved to begin with. Peter says, they did know the way of righteousness, and they did know the Holy Commandment, and they did, ha did have exact knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, so, Peter says it would have been better to have never been in that relationship with Christ than have been there and apparently left it and be worse off than they were before. And then verse 22, last verse of chapter 2. Peter compares these people to a dog returning to eat its own vomit. That's from Proverbs 26, 11, and also compares it to a sow that is uh, cleaned up, but it goes right back into the mire, the mud, and the filth. And that's disgusting. Uh, the the uh, small town that my wife grew up in, it was a farm town, basically. Many, many farms surrounded the little town, and uh, some of the farms, some of the farmers were pig farmers. God bless them, uh, and when you'd say things about the uh, bad smell, they would say, well, that's the smell of money, and I'm sure they were right, but I want to tell you, those pigs in the mire, the mud, and the filth, and who knows what else was in there, it was pretty disgusting sight, and it was an incredibly rank smell, uh, sows, pigs, in that mess, and yet here it is, believers returning to the same old sin over and over it, he compares it to that. I'm not saying, by the way, that that means you're lost. I understand the struggle with sin, and I understand we need to keep going to Jesus uh, for forgiveness and, and to work towards repentance and confessing our sin, First John 1, 9. But it's a sickening picture. A dog eating its own vomit or the sow that goes back to the filth and just lays in it and wallows in it. Thank God for First John 1, 9, though. But what a horrendous picture here for believers who are saved by the glorious grace of our magnificent Savior, who are being prepared for eternity, and the bride of Jesus Christ 
dressed in bright and clean linen. And there we are, eating our own vomit of sin and wallowing in filthy mire like pigs. What does Jesus say about this? Matthew 6.33 sums it up so well. But you, Christian, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. He will take care of you. Well, there you go. We made it through chapter 2. Next session will start in chapter 3. And finally, thank the Lord, get away from the discussion about false teachers and move on to some other topics. Uh, Thank you for joining me in this session. I hope you will continue to stay with us in this study through 2 Peter. God bless you.